Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, the leading management publication for the social sector in Australia. I'm Karen Proud, editor of the SVA Quarterly, and I'm speaking with Fiona Higgins, grant-making specialist at Australian Philanthropic Services, which is an independent, not-for-profit organisation that establishes and administers private and public ancillary funds. Hello, Fiona. Thanks for talking with us today. Hi, Karen. Great to be here. As you've written about in the article, Accessing PAF's Six Rules of Engagement, many not-for-profit organisations are keen to engage with private ancillary funds, believing them to be a source of potential funding. First off, could you describe the size of the PAF giving in Australia? Yes, so what we know about PAPs is based on ATO data collected every financial year and and the most recent data we have is that of the 2014-15 financial year and what we know is that there are more than 1,500 PAPs now in Australia. I've actually heard that in the current year we reached 1,550 PAPs but that's not validated data. Um, So these more than 1,500 PAPs have an asset base combined of uh, in excess of $10 billion and they're required to distribute a minimum of 5% of their corpus annually. So um, they're distributing or or donating in excess of 30 million, sorry, $300 million (laughs) annually, forgot that extra zero, which sounds like a lot and it is collectively. but what we what we've seen at APS is that the average PAPS five percent is around two hundred thousand dollars a year, and that this is often given away in tranches of five thousand to twenty thousand dollars per organisation. So not like, not such a large uh, sum of money that goes to individual organisations. Mm, certainly not the funding panacea that perhaps some organisations imagine when they hear, you know, uh, numbers such as combined asset base of $10 billion, you know, it's a huge sum, but uh, how it translates in terms of distributions to charities um, is quite different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And can you describe a typical path holder? What, what, who, who are they? Um, like, can you put a face <laughs> a typical... to a face to that? That who, who that is? Oh, a face. Well, um, you know, there there really is no such thing as a, as a typical path holder. Um, you know, in my experience, I've been working with paths since 2001, when when paths first came into being as as PPFs. Um, there's nothing terribly typical about them, actually. Um, the, the only thing that unites PAPS really is their structure uh, and probably the only common quality across PAPS holders is that they're philanthropic, which sounds you know, intuitive than it is, but um, you know, they're giving away their funds for community purposes rather than keeping it for themselves. Um, there's been a lot of publicity around mega-givers, Clive Berghofer, the Tuckers, the Forests, um, so we imagine, I suppose, that PAFs might be the exclusive domain of high net worth individuals. Now, obviously, there are many PAFs that have been established by high net worth individuals. But um, in terms of our experience at APS, we see people of all walks of life coming through the door. 
So I, I have contact with a with a PAF, um, for example, which was established after the founders, who who are not high net worth individuals, um, decided to put a structure to their acts of religious tithing. So this this PAF gives away actually in excess of that five percent minimum, and it, it donates ten percent per annum, consistent with the philosophy of tithing. Um, so so PAFs you know, don't necessarily have tens of millions at at inception. And, and some people, some PATH holders, they start, they set up with a relatively modest corpus uh, and then they create a clear financial plan to augment, augment that, that corpus over time and possibly even designate um, some or, or all of their estates um, to the PATH, you know, at which point the PATH, um, you know, beyond their lifetime becomes a, a, a very sizable Legacy and and often it's a, leg- a legacy that's that's left for their children and grandchildren who are involved in the governance and and management of of that path. So, what are the defining features of path funding as far as recipients are concerned? Um, mm. How do they? How does it differentiate from other philanthropic funding or other sources of funding? Yes, well, paths. Paths don't have the, the kinds of stakeholders um, that governments or, or corporate funders have. So arguably, they're, they're capable of, of being less risk-averse of, of funding pilot concepts or incubation stage projects or organisational startups. Um, and, you know, the sector often talks about paths in, in that way, um, we often talk about perhaps being an ideal source of social risk capital, um, precisely because they can be more flexible um, than governments um, or, or corporate funders. Um, you know, and this does often happen, but but not all paths. <laughs> Coming back to that no typical feature issue, not all paths are a source of social risk capital. You know, some some path holders are, are very wary of expending their funds on, on untested ideas. But if I had to um, uh, underline one defining feature, I'd say that paths are capable of being less risk averse and they can um, provide um, that social risk capital funding that, that other funders uh, can't. What, again, again, just in terms of my experience at APS, what we do see as a defining feature, I suppose, of many paths is that because they're often staffless, they're not being run um, by anyone beyond the founder or the founder's family, typically, um, they tend to get less bogged down with bureaucracy and uh, process and reporting. Um, So there's not that protracted negotiation and consultation and, and iteration and reiteration that's often a feature of, you know, funding applications with other types of grant makers. Um, mm. Sometimes uh, perhaps grant making decisions could even be, you know, deemed radically process-less. Um, I've seen <laughs> this a little bit where, a, you know, a past holder bumps into someone or, or hears about a community idea that really resonates um, with their own personal passions or their own life experience and they they reach out to the organisation and then a funding decision is made almost instantly, um, sometimes without you know any paperwork at all or, dare I say it, due diligence. Um, these sorts of um, experiences are probably pretty rare for, for non-profits, but they, but they do happen. And if they're going to happen with any style of funder, it's, 
it's likely to happen with a calf. And, you know, that that's a... Some would argue that it's really um, possibly remiss on the part of the path holder, but from the non-profit side, um, it's a wonderful and, and liberating gift, I think. What are the some of the obstacles to connecting with paths for, for not-for-profits? Well, the, the major obstacle is that, you know, we don't know much about them and we don't know how to contact them. And so many in the sector would love there to be a formal public register of paths, but there just isn't such a thing. Um, paths are required to register with and they report to the ATO and the ACNC and they report uh, regularly and they report rigorously, but there's no mandate of the, you know, public transparency for paths. Um, mm -hmm. So if we can't access them, then we, we, you know, we don't really know much about them all. And, this is unlikely to change, I think. Um, some would argue that it shouldn't. Whichever position you align with, it does present a clear obstacle for anyone who's working in business development or fundraising in nonprofits. It's, it's, they're, they're hard to access. But w where they are accessed by nonprofits, I think another real obstacle. Um, to connecting properly with paths or in a way that's mutually satisfying and useful for both parties is that there can be an unrealistic expectation on the part of non-profits about how they might be able to influence path decision-making and what kind of funding that path might deliver. And that comes back to one of my earlier points. What I mean by that is that I think... People in the sector, um, probably on the non-profit side, tend to underestimate the role that passion and per personal preference or experience plays in, in path decision-making. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really um, simply about putting a winning business case or impact argument to path, path holders. Uh, I can think of an example of a path with which I have had contact. And I'm thinking about how it makes its decisions. Its, its decisions are governed primarily by whether a charitable entity that's seeking funding is working in conservation management in a particular area of Australia, a geographic area of Australia, which corresponds with the path holders' personal land holdings, mm. um, i.e. there's some kind of personal background in that area, and whether someone that path holder trusts has referred the applicant organisation to him. So those those criteria are not overt. You won't find them in the public domain, but, but, but they're certainly in operation. And this is not a path that would be open to impact arguments or a, or a fantastically well-developed and delivered business case from organisations, even environmental organisations, um, that, that fall outside those um, inferred criteria. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, that's another very real obstacle, I think. Um, but that the second part of, of unrealistic expectations is um, that because nonprofits understandably don't know a lot about paths, no one, no one does, um, th this can lead to, to wild fantasies about kind of large and catalyzing donations, which again, I mentioned earlier. Um, obviously, the large catalyzing donations, they do happen sometimes and it's wonderful when they do and there's often a large amount of media coverage that's garnered um, thinking here of something like the Paul Ramsey Foundation. But 
Most PATHs are dabbling in their first years of giving and um, they're staffless and they're dealing in tranches of $5,000 to $20,000. And I think that, I think nonprofits really need to keep that in mind when they're thinking about their overtures potentially to PATHs um, and kind of planning um, their their fund their income sources for, for the for any given financial year. So so that really brings us to the kind of rules of engagement that you've given these six rules of engagement. I think one of them the, the first one is to be very clear about the ask. Um, mm. So that, that that's what you're alluding to there to be very clear what would be feasible. Look, I think it always helps to have a have a have a wish list sort of prepared up your sleeve, you know, with which you can be prepared to engage a path holder in a discussion. And, and when I say a wish list, it, it it has to connect very closely with your organisational strategy, and you have to be able you have to be able to prepared to explain how how it connects. It's all about being prepared to engage because sometimes opportunities for engagement um, pop up. Um, serendipitously and and one of my other um, six rules I suppose is to go to industry events and it sounds very arbitrary and unscientific but it seems to me that many uh, opportunities for engagement or sometimes the only opportunities for engagement with path holders whom you may not know or may not have ever been introduced to or met previously um, resides exclusively in going to those industry events um, you know, Philanthropy Australia conferences and the like, Mm. um, which increases your chances of meeting the people with whom you can then have the discussion about um, your organisational needs. But bumping into path holders is a serious business. Um, So there, you know, there are other steps that, that, that non-profits can take and that includes reaching out to intermediaries such as us, Australian Philanthropic Services or Perpetual or Mutual Trust or the like, those entities that look after or manage or administer in some way, PATH. Um, although in doing so, it's always a good idea to research what what the modus operandi is of each entity because um, these entities are different um, and their processes for facilitating engagement with PATH um, are very different. Fundamentally, in the absence of um, obvious opportunities to um, reach out to um, new paths. If you have a relationship with an existing path, then it's worth nurturing. Um, one of the first things I always suggest to a nonprofit, and it sounds so basic, um, but many people say to me, "Oh, I didn't really think of that," is is to ask a path holder how how they wish to be communicated with hmm. because they're very different. They're, they're not a government funder and oftentimes, um, or corporate funder, oftentimes slick, um, well-developed evaluation reports may tick a box, but more often than not, they, they may not. And so one needs to find out how to best engage with each individual path. Um, with which a non-profit might have a relationship because it may, may look very different. It may be a cup of coffee. It may be um, an opportunity for a PATH founder's children to be involved in some way or at least you know, conduct a, a site visit to an entity. It all sounds quite basic, but if you don't ask how a PATH holder wishes to be communicated with, 
then there's a possibility that you will um, uh, accidentally damage um, the channels of communication just by virtue of not of not having asked. Mm. That said, I think it's always useful to to keep up your sleeve a mix of narrative and more hard nosed evidence of an entity's impact. Um, for mm-hmm. some, a, a well-told case study um, will prompt funding. For others, they, they need to, to see the SROI in, in very clear terms. So any other tips for not-for-profits? You've covered quite a lot of ground there. Just what to keep in mind. Mm, I would say read the article. I, I would, <laughs> I'd also say, again, it's one of these basic courtesies, um, say thank you. The power of thanks is, is ever-present when it comes to dealing with, with paths. Thank you, Fiona. And as Fiona says, you can read the complete article, Accessing Paths, Six Rules of Engagement. Related podcasts and articles can be found on the SVA quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly forward slash. Thank you.